are the property of the penal administration of French Guiana. There's no way off. There's always a way. I know many of you are thinking about escape. This is your best chance. Feel free to try whenever you like. I mean to go with you. There are two guardians who are always on duty. Bush, but the best thing that can happen to you is starvation. Or you could choose to see. What you got for? He's my friend. Where the sharks were always hungry. If you manage to survive your first attempt, you'll get two years in solitary. Second attempt, you'll get a life sentence at Devil's Island. Strange things happen there. Especially to those who cling to hope. If I ever get out, I'm gonna live a different kind of life. An excerpt there from the just-released 2018, hmm, what shall we call it, remake, redo, new adaptation of Papillon based on the 1969 autobiography which detailed convict Henri Charrier's years-long efforts to escape the jungle prison camp islands of French Guiana, Danish director Michael Nouria's new take on the famous story features Son of Anarchy's Charlie Hunnam and Mr. Robot's Rami Malek in the roles previously essayed by Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman in Franklin Schaffner's classic 1973 film version of the book. Say what you will about social media, and a lot of the negative stuff is true, but one of its more positive aspects is how when you have a group of like-minded individuals, in our case writers and filmmakers and plain old movie fans, who can intelligently, and there's the real trick, intelligently debate a topic, how creatively stimulating and educational it can be when you connect with someone on the other side. And just a few nights ago, such a lengthy debate conversation ensued between myself in Boston and Craig in Philadelphia and individuals in London and Norway and Los Angeles. All of us chiming in and adding fairly intelligent, go figure, commentary commentary on not just the upcoming Papillon, but also on such films as Kenneth Branagh's recent take on Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, which had previously been, and most famously, been filmed uh, by Sidney Lumet in 1974, but then also on TV in 2001 and 2010 and 2015. Mm -hmm. And we also talked about John Carpenter's The Thing and David Cronenberg's The Fly, uh, Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and various versions of the Mutiny on the Bounty story, and some others too. And in each case, we found ourselves attempting to uh, reach some kind of consensus on what constitutes a remake. Is it strictly basing a film on the screenplay of something which in its original source material state was just a film? Or does it, can it, and should it be expanded uh, so that the category would also include any film based on original material of any kind? A book, a play, comic book, graphic novel, or whatever, which has been previously adapted, well or not, into a film. (laughs) Well, you know, the Oxford Dictionary defines remake in general as to make something again or differently. Oh, and then there's that most obvious of all the R words, which no one ever wants to admit to uh, rip off. (laughs) But hey, the fact is, all of those R's factor into film as we not only know it today, but let's be honest here, as the medium has always been. At any rate, don't be too quick to write off remakes, or whatever you want to call them, as cash-grabbing second-time-arounders, because some of them over the years, depending on the scripts or actors or directors or the context of the eras in which they've been made, have ended up just as good or, perish the thought, even better 
than their earlier cinematic incarnations. Tonight we're taking a look at a few that we think rate as pretty damn good movies in and of themselves. You may be surprised, hell even shocked at some of our choices, but try not to hate us too much. Because in the end, even if you don't necessarily see 100% eye to eye with some of our picks, we think at the very least you'll end up curious enough to want to check out some of the titles mentioned either for the first time, or you'll want to revisit them, this time with maybe a fresh perspective you never considered before. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of TheLunchMovie.com. And welcome to an all-new edition of The Movie Sneak, Deja Vu, a surprising look at a few favorite remakes. Hercules Poirot? Hercule Poirot, I do not slay the lions, <coughs> mademoiselle. Mary Debenham, monsieur. I'll forget a name, but never a face. Not yours, anyway. You come from Baghdad? It's true. No detail escapes his notice. Your ticket? Ah. I might also ask you if you enjoyed your time there as a governess. The chalk on your sleeve and the geography of primer, a governess or a cartographer. <laughs> I made my gamble. I always begin them with geography and monster them till they have the world down cold. They may get lost in life, but I'll be damned if they don't know where they are. Social media gets a lot of bad rap, and a lot of it well deserved. But sometimes you can really have some really great, uh, you can make some really great friends and make some really great uh, discoveries. For example, we decided to do this show on remakes uh, last week. And the night before, just last night, coincidentally, uh, a friend on Facebook posted something about the upcoming Papillon redo. Mm -hmm. I'll call it redo instead of remake. And just made a comment of how, you know, while in general, I'm not nuts about remakes, you know, why not try to go for something new and original if you can? But I'm also not one of those people who automatically discounts remakes out of hand just because they're remakes. And a couple of other people chimed in, uh, one of whom is a really great guy named uh, Asim Ahmad, and he lives in uh, London these days. And he's an actor and a writer, and another fellow who also chimed in, a guy named uh, Dag Settled, who actually is from Norway. And he is a film journalist who has written a number of uh, pieces about film. And one of the neat things that Dag has been doing in recent days, he knows his films very well. Uh, classic films, contemporary films. Somehow, and for whatever reason, he kind of missed out on films of the 80s. So for the past month or two, 
he has just been doing marathons of 80s films and not just quintessential movies like what you would think of in the 80s. You know, films that um, Ready Player One <laughs> <can't> <laughs> homage to. You know, right. he's not not just Back to the Future kind of movies, which he is re, you know watching a lot of those for the first time, but also films like The Bounty and Places in the Heart and Mask. And it's really neat to see the views of someone we grew up with those films in the 80s so to a certain degree they're just part of our warped and wept part of our dna but mm-hmm. someone like him especially someone from another country seeing these films now he often has a different take on them because a he's seeing them for the first time not in the context in which they're released so in some respects he's missing out on some of the context but in other respects he's coming to them and viewing them without any preconceptions or any baggage the way that we view them today. And it's fascinating to see some of his um, uh, uh, views on the films, uh, a couple of which I've disagreed with and said, well, I think if you look at them in a different context, you'll view them differently. And he said, yeah, you, you, you may be right. And a couple of others where I've said, hmm, I never thought of it that way. So um, one of the things I love, so last night you, me, Dag, and Asim got into a little bit of a uh, Facebook discussion, a long, long thread, with about 25, almost 30 entries, and a few other people chimed in here and there, talking about remakes in general. And that ended up being a perfect intro for our, our talk tonight. Because I think what we agreed upon last night was the fact that, and, and please tell me if you agree, that mm-hmm. definition, the definition of what constitutes a remake it's kind of up in the air. Yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty much where we came to. I mean, we, we agreed on some things, but there were some other areas that we were kind of agreeing to good at disagree, mm-hmm. which was the other neat thing about the conversation was nobody jumped on each other's case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone yeah, was, it was like, great. Okay, it was, I can dig yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned the bounty earlier. The bounty was almost going to be one of my choices today uh, to talk about. and that's, and But through the, through that conversation, it, was, it kind of dawned out that, no, Mutiny on the Bounty, both versions titled that, are based on a fictitious adventure story. And the 1984 bounty is based on a maritime piece of history uh, that included court-martial transcripts and ship's logs. It's not the same book. It's not. It's based on the same events. But you know, as as the other fellows pointed out last night, it's not technically a remake. So there, I had to. You know, I came up with a different answer. So it was a good conversation that actually has already affected uh, what we're about to do right now. Right. Uh, same here. And for me, um, it kind of helped me to. I wouldn't say change, but maybe refocus some of my emphasis. Okay, technically, if you adapt something from the same source material, it isn't necessarily a remake, you know. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express came up, also based on the novel by Agatha Christie, just as City Lamette's uh, earlier film was. And there have even been a couple of BBC TV versions of Murder on the Orient Express. So can you call them remakes? Now, I had brought up, and, and the same thing with the Papillon, the new version of Papillon which the original film was based on the 1969 book, um, Autobiography. And then there was a follow-up book that came out around the same time as the 1973 film called Banco, which followed Papillon's uh, life after he escaped. Now, between then and now, some of the material in the first book has been discredited as being untrue. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And And so the new film kind of takes, while officially it's based on the first and second book, it kind of borrows from its from what I've seen. I haven't seen the film yet, so I can't you know uh, definitively say so. But from what I've seen, it 
seems to be in its production design, in its costume design, in its tone, and in its reason for existence, it seems to be basing itself more on the look and style and tone of Franklin Schaffner's original film. So, it's like, do you consider that a remake or just another film taken from the same material? Uh, Murder on the Orient Express came up. And mm-hmm. uh, we got into a neat conversation that, that you'll remember between me and Asim, where he had mentioned it's taken from the Agatha Christie novel. And I had said, yeah, but I always thought that City Limits film added a great deal of wit and humor that wasn't in the book. And then he said, yeah, but Kenneth Branagh, his films are known for wit and humor, too. And I agreed, citing a film like Dead Again as a a lot of wit and humor. And it's very Mm -hmm. definitively a Branagh film. But I also said the tone of the remake tends to borrow from Sidney Lumet's original film as well as from Agatha Christie's book. And you can't really look at John Carpenter's thing and just say it's a more faithful version of John W. John W. Campbell's short story who goes there because Howard Hawks is one of John Carpenter's favorite directors. He's said that many, many times. Howard Hawks was a producer and most people say co-director of the thing. And there are scenes in John Carpenter's thing which are deliberately patterned after shots and angles and what have you from the original version of the film. So is that a remake or is it just based on the same material? So eventually... We all kind of came to the conclusion that regardless, yeah, there are official remakes, official redos of the original material, and then there's unofficially what we all know. (laughs) Right, right, (laughs) right. So jumping into it, for the audience, just to let you know how we're breaking things down. All of that said, the way that Jim and I are breaking things down tonight, we have a few categories. uh, Six categories of uh, favorite remakes in a certain category. And maybe even the word favorite is a relative term. I would say, you know, films that we like based on a certain category. Because whenever you say favorite, for some reason, a lot of times people automatically say, uh, they equate that with the best. And Mm -hmm. favorite and best aren't necessarily the same thing. So anyway, the the categories that we're doing tonight. uh, First is a favorite remake based on a classic, the original of which is not... The Thing, Seven Samurai, or Yojimbo, because that's too damn easy. Okay? (laughs) The second category is uh, a remake which pretends it isn't a remake. Okay? And we'll get to that in detail in a bit. The third, a remake which you actually like more than the original. That should be fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yep. Next a favorite remake which surprised you something that you didn't think you would like but you did Uh, after that a favorite remake that you're almost ashamed to admit you love (laughs) that's going to be a lot of fun (laughs) and then finally ending up with a favorite remake period Okay, so starting that off I'm going to go first with a favorite remake based on a classic which isn't the thing Seven Samurai or Yojimbo now I would imagine you have a couple of runner-ups in each category, too. So mm-hmm. please feel free to mention your runner-ups. We don't want to Tokyo. go into too much detail about the runner-ups, but you know, yeah. but just for time's sake. But we sure as hell can mention them, and maybe one or two points as to why they made the list. Okay, so for me, mm-hmm. as far as uh, favorite remake based on a classic, my runner-ups would be okay. uh, the remake of Willard, hmm. the uh, Martin Scorsese's The Departed, 
which of course is based on the Japanese film. Uh, uh, the uh, Coen Brothers remake of True Grit and uh, the remake of 310 to Yuma. Hmm. So they would all be my runner-ups. And it was a tough choice between all of them, to be honest with you. But my the one I'm going to go with is the 2004 first remake of Alfie. Really? Yeah, directed by Charles Shaw. Wow. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. I'm going to shut up because I'm very curious. As to why I think that one. <laughs> I think this just might be my favorite position. Oh. I know it was President oh. Kennedy's. Oh. What is it about the back of a limo? <laughs> 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 mm. Obligatory mm. cuddling. Thousand one. Thousand two. Mm. Right, mm. I've got to get cracking. I've got a ten o'clock pickup. <laughs> Quite the number, isn't she? tells me her old man hasn't shaved her in six months. Six months. I mean, thank God there were gentlemen like me around to pick up the slack. Now, even though I said we definitely want to keep things as brief as possible, this might take a little longer because the reason I like this film so much, and it might be my favorite based on a classic, is kind of the template for my judging of what makes a good remake in general okay so now Alfie is one of those films that when I mention I love the remake most people automatically go on the attack (laughs) first they automatically say things like well you haven't seen the original and yeah I have in Mm -hmm. fact I'm often as old as or older than those saying that (laughs) and I come back with yeah I did in fact I grew up with it and the and the thing is the attack isn't ever really directed at the film per se in fact a lot of times I think the people who do the attacking haven't even seen the remake Uh, the attack the conviction is usually along the lines of well Jude Law is no Michael Caine and I agree with that and it eventually reverts into how remakes are uncreative money rubbing crap and I agree that many of them are so I'm with you there but ultimately as we said earlier I'm going to judge a film as an individual film and not because it's a dip into another source material well you know, a film on a, a film based on another film deserves the same consideration and harsh scrutiny as a film based on a book, a play, TV series, comic book, true incident, or whatever. Anyway, that said, and um, like I said, uh, the same criteria works for remakes in general for me. Uh, my mother was over the other night for dinner, and I put on a Stephen King documentary uh, that TCM ran a few years ago, and I got into a discussion with her about what makes something genuinely scary, and what makes something genuinely scary is the fact that it's it's always relative to the individual person watching it but it's also relative to the era in which that story was created uh what was scary in the 1950s isn't necessarily scary now and vice versa or what might put me on edge isn't necessarily what might put you on edge so there's a big sliding scale there but i do think that just as with shakespeare plays You have to look at something, a film, not a remake, or a redo, or a reboot, or a reimagining, whatever you want to call it. You have to look at it as not just, is it timeless enough to exist in today's world, which that shouldn't be a main criteria, but you also should be able to look at it in its original era, the context in which it was created, and see the commonalities between that era and this era. I think that's really important. For example... 
uh, Don Siegel's original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, ultimately, the film was about conformity. And on, on one side, you have people saying it's a warning against the post-World War II communist threat and conforming to, you know, that. And on the other side, you have people saying it's a warning against McCarthyism and falling in line with a government standard which is not necessarily constitutional. Now, what I love about Philip Kaufman's uh, 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is that ultimately, subtextually, it's still about conformity. But in this sense, the conformity is kind of how, in the 1970s, it was hip and trendy to be counterculture. And almost, it, the conformity was conforming to the idea that you have to be protesting something. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, almost like, um, okay, to me, today's equivalent, if you would make a, a, a version of inba- Invasion of the Body Snatchers today and use the primary central nervous system of conformity but make that conformity about say political correctness run amok I think that would be a fascinating take on the idea of conformity in the context of invasion of the body snatchers and the pods and everyone falling in line with a new social political idea or ideal you know I think that's what the film was about and not necessarily specifically about communism or McCarthyism, although in the 50s it was, and in the 70s it was about counterculture falling in line. I think today it would be about political correctness run amok falling in line. So that said, or used as an example, I think Invasion of the Body Snatchers works in its original context and in the present context. So, that said, going into Alfie, I love that film because I think that does that. I'm a longtime Charles Shire fan. Uh, he started as a writer on movies like Smokey and the Bandit and Jack Nicholson's Going South, but he's best known for his long list of romantic comedies, intelligent romantic comedies, with ex-wife screenwriter Nancy Myers. And among them, there was Private Benjamin, Irreconcilable Differences, Baby Boom, the two Father of the Bride remakes, you know, with Steve Martin and Diane Keaton. And after his divorce, and I've never heard him say this, but after his divorce, I always felt that he, quote-unquote, grew up <laughs> and started making films that were still about relationships and were very uh, perceptive, but were a bit more adult and dark. He uh, directed The Affair of the Necklace from 2001. And then he directed Alfie. And the thing I like about Alfie is that um, the original film, based on a play by Bill Naughton, and I've never seen or read the play, so I can't really comment on that specifically. But what I like how the new film, or the newer film, transplants that character and attitudes to the early 2000s American landscape of a faster lifestyle. I mean, the Alpha character comes to New York based on the fact that it's got the most beautiful women in the world. Uh, the heterosexual male's version of the land of opportunity, or forgive the all-color anal- analogy, land of milk and honey, you know, <laughs> or milk and honeys, you know, <laughs> it's the American dream of another kind. And New York is arguably the most multicultural city in the world. And as such, you have this multi-ethnic panoply of female characters of various ages and social strata portrayed by Sienna Miller, Nia Long, Jane Krakowski, and especially Marissa Tomei and Susan Sarandon, uh, where you would not have anywhere else in the world. Uh, It also takes place in a world now clouded by AIDS, and a world uh, where the era 
of the roles of men and women and the power dynamic between men and women are being questioned and reconsidered nearly every other week. And so setting the character and the story in that setting opens up a whole wide range of subjects, uh, societal open wounds, if you will, to explore. And um, I think there's a tendency in relationship films to have a simple, the guy can't commit, but he learns the value of true love eventually. You know, there's a simplicity there. But Alfie, while it's trailer maybe led audience to believe it would be another one of those really surprised me when I first saw it at the movies by also calling women out on their bullshit too you know maybe not deliberate bullshit like a lot of guys do but self-delusionary bullshit you know telling, <laughs> yeah, telling themselves they want one thing but going for something else and then blaming someone else when they don't get what they say they want that's in that movie you know no one in the movie except maybe Alfie's best friend betrayed by Omar Epps is ready to grow up and be honest with themselves regardless of how old they are and how much to the outside world and to themselves they might seem to have it together. And even the Epps character is crushed when Alfie betrays him and sleeps with his woman and that takes things into a really heartbreaking dark area. But, I mean, there's a lot of heartbreak going on in this film but it reminds me of the famous saying where it's the breaks which allow the light to shine in. And for me, that's what this version of Alfie surprisingly does. And that's why I really dig it. Wow. Cool. You know, I've never actually seen it all the way through. I've just seen bits and pieces on cable. Mm -hmm. And I mostly, I mean, I didn't, I didn't dismiss it, but I didn't make a huge point to see it because I was pretty much one of those people that you outlined at the beginning. Uh, so yeah, now, now I'll make more of a point to see it. I I, I Uh, think it's worth a view out of curiosity. If nothing else. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm, I had, <laughs> I, uh, I almost had uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers as uh, as one of my options here, and I did have it as a as a you know a runner okay. up. But I'm, man, now I'm glad I didn't because you pretty much nailed it better than I would. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> um, all right. Hope, hope, hope the, the game is afoot now. Here right? we, we go. Can step on each other's toes left and right. All right. Um, well, you know what? My my favorite of a classic is one that. Oh, well, first you know, of all, uh, do you have oh, any? I'm sorry. Uh, yes, sir. How about uh, runner ups there first? Run ropes, yes. Um, well, I already mentioned the bounty earlier, and I even wrote a whole spiel for the bounty before we really decided it doesn't fit. Okay. Um, and and I, I know you wrote about this just a couple days ago, but I I actually really like the Manchurian Candidate. Okay, remake. okay, cool. I, I saw your points entirely, and they actually are what kept it on my runner-up mm-hmm. versus like you know doing the extra effort of, of going of, you know running the numbers on it. But uh, but yeah, I was basically maybe because I didn't expect much from it. Okay, you know there's certain movies that you kind of okay this will be good. Yeah, yeah. And then it turned out to be way better than I thought it'd be. Uh-huh. Um, uh, uh, Thirteen Assassins. Uh, oh, interesting. Uh, okay, cool. Right, cool. samurai thing from Takashi Miike. Yeah. That um, I had not seen the original. I saw Miike's. It blew me away. And then I saw the original and saw what he tweaked and what he stayed doggedly faithful to went back and saw his and they just they, they were both of them just I mean for a bleak movie they both make me really happy just because they're so well done uh-huh, uh-huh. okay um, uh, another another favorite for me is uh, the end of the end of the affair oh nice All right. the Neil Jordan um, but the one I'm actually yeah okay you know, eh, I'll say that for later I was about to tease something but screw it okay. no All spoilers right. <laughs> no spoilers in the show let alone spoilers in the movie okay. um, but the, the, the one I'm going with is one that fewer people are actually in a position to say whoa have you seen the original because the original is a silent I'm going with uh, uh, Werner Herzog's remake of Nosferatu oh great choice
The knife is old and could be dirty. It could give you blood poisoning. Please, let me do it. It's the oldest remedy in the world. Oh, forget it. It's hardly worth mentioning. Just a little cut. Here. Uh, 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 you know, it's only for the best. The original movie was a German silent movie made by F.W. Murnau from 1922, just called Nosferatu. Uh, Herzog's remake was Nosferatu the Vampire. If you don't know the backstory on Murnau's thing, first thing you should do is see Shadow of the Vampire, which is a funny, oh, completely fictional, right? It's just goofy fun. It's basically, it's, it's John Malkovich plays Murnau and Willem Dafoe swinging for the fences like nobody's business plays an actor named Max Schreck, and the conceit in Shadow of the Vampire is that Max Schreck actually is a vampire, and 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 Murnau has hired him to play a vampire in this movie just to lend authenticity, and the deal is, at the end of the movie, I'll let you have the leading lady, you can turn her, or eat her, or whatever the hell you want to right. do. So that's kind of the suspense of the movie, and it's actually viciously funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's yeah, kind of it's, a skewering of yeah. method acting to a degree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's just so fun. Um, so and you know, but it's so fun. But it's also the more I research Murnau, it's you know, not the, too the, far the portrayal from the truth. of him is yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, so Murnau's film was basically an adaptation of Dracula, but legally he could not get the rights to the story of Dracula. Um, there was a stage play being written, uh, or, or already already in process. Like, the, the, the rights belong to other people. There's no chance he can get them. He'd already gone far enough down the road on making the movie. He said, well, screw it. I'm just going to change his name to Captain Orlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain, I'm sorry. Um, Captain um, Count Orlock. Count Orlock. Comic book films. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? Uh, yeah, Goddamn right. comic book films seeping in it. Everything. <laughs> to Count Orlock is what he changed the name to. Max Schreck plays this bald, feral-looking, deep-socketed-eyed, rat-toothed, long Freddy Krueger-ish fingers, creepy just vile looking vampire just this horrible looking not you know nothing cool about him he's a monster yeah, he's a yeah, straight monster there's no way you look at this thing and go oh man that's cool I want to grow up to be him like Frank Langella's right. Dracula right uh, he's just gross um, and you know my initial thinking was when I first saw that movie like why would you ever need to remake this it's kind of perfect but then I realized well you know maybe it was perfect for it's time it's almost you, you know I did get to see it in a revival house when I was like 7 or 8 and people were kind of giggling at it because it, you know it's a silent movie <laughs> and, and and what would have been terrifying seeing this this Max Shrek image of just blood curdling horror was actually kind of stiff a little more <laughs> you know he moves yes. yeah he moves he moves a little slow he moves a little dopey and you know the the music is depends on who you know who's doing your organ accompaniment so you know you can't really count on it the way they could have in 1922 um so Murnau makes this perfectly solid adaptation of Dracula and I would even argue in some cases a more faithful adaptation of the book than a lot of the movies that have called themselves Dracula you know, because and then a lot of the movies have also been based on that same stage play that picks up, yes. you know, a third of the way into the damn book. So, so Mer- F. W. Murnau makes this silent classic, and it's it's you know I'm not meaning to knock it down with the Max Schreck knocks, even no, though no, no, no. he was great. But at the same time, if you've never seen it, it's a it's a um, 
a master course in German expressionism, just in in what Murnau does with the camera and what Murnau does with sets and with lighting and oh, it's a forced it's perspective. A film and it is creepy. Yeah. Yeah, you can't take your eyes off it, and it's also one that you know you can pretty much just pick your own scary music and put it mm-hmm. on, and uh, it, and it's great. But um, so why would you need to remake that? Well, my my first inclination, the thing that the thing that I first loved about Herzog's was another swing for the fences performance from Klaus Kinski. Oh yeah, um, who if you have ever seen a, a, you know aside from Shadow of the Vampire, another great fun movie is is. Uh, uh, Herzog made a documentary about his relationship with the actor Klaus Kinski called My Best, Best Fiend. Fiend. I love that film. Right? <laughs> and, I mean, I'd always liked their movies together, uh, but I'd never realized what a <laughs> maniac. They were nuts together. Yeah, they were, they, the two of them were. Yes. They fed into each other at their worst. Um, and best. Uh, so, Kinski, for, a, for, a, for an insanely, a megalomaniacally vain actor, does the most unvain thing he possibly could. He makes his character even more skin crawly than Shrek than Max Shrek did. Um, it, it, and like I, I mentioned, Franklin Jello before, and once upon a time, uh, uh, Bela Lugosi was kind of thought of as, as seductive uh, with the Hungarian accent. The Christopher Lee Dracula is the most elegant gentleman you could ever see, right? I mean, he's just damn beautiful, and you pretty much want to go wherever he's going to lead you. Um, vampires for for decades between these two movies had become more and more cool more and more suave and uh kinski turns this entirely on its ear goes even more rat like more feral more sleazy really than uh than uh, even the original version had so kinski gives you this this thing that you just want to you want to step on him you want to stake him you want to set him on fire you want to just get him the hell away from it, and it it's such a engrossing performance that once you've seen Kinski's Nosferatu, you pretty much I won't knock Shrek and say you can't take him seriously but it, he eclipses it. That's all I'm going to say. And and film scholars can argue with that me all day like as far as I'm concerned, after I saw Klaus Kinski in this character with that same balding head and those same deep eyes and those fingers and those teeth and that that Creature, which you know, for for modern horror fans who haven't seen this stuff, probably the closest thing I can give you as a comparison is the blind cave creatures in the descent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's pretty much how he comes off. Um, so really, this performance to me was okay. Well, there's your main reason to remake the thing. Why can't we pick our own colors? No way, no way. Tried it once, it doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mister Black, but they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. No way. I pick. You're Mr. Pink. Be thankful you're not Mr. Yellow. Mr. Pink sounds like Mr. Pussy. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me. I'll, I'll be Mr. Purple. Some guy on some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend just keeps on coming with this little ditty that reached up to 21 in May of 1970. 
Okay, so I'll take off with the next uh, topic, which is favorite remake, which pretends it's not a remake. You know, those movies where they didn't necessarily buy the rights to something, uh, and they haven't, you know, brought in any of the original actors to do little cameos or anything cute like that. But they are still basically ripping off to such a degree that they might as well just acknowledge that they're doing a remake. So my, my big run... Re- I'm sorry, my big runner-up that I really, really almost went with was Barbed Wire oh. Pam Anderson. Really? Which is basically a gender swap remake of Casablanca. Okay. And the one I'm actually going to go with uh, is Reservoir Dogs. We ain't taking him to a hospital. We know he's going to die. And I'm very sad about that, but some fellas are lucky and some ain't. What the fuck you touching me for, man? <laughs> I'll show you who you're fucking with. You want to shoot me, you little piece of shit? Go ahead, take a shot. Fuck you, White. I didn't create this situation. I'm dealing with it. You're acting like a first-year fucking thief. I'm acting like a professional. They get him, they can get you. They get you, they get closer to me, and that can't happen. As far as riffing on uh, a Hong Kong movie called City on Fire from 1987, directed by Ringo Lam, who I think is Mm -hmm. one of the coolest guys ever to come out of Hong Kong. He did a couple of American movies and then went right back because he preferred working there. I think the James Bond world of the 90s is for the less because they didn't actually get Ringo Lam to do a Bond movie because mm-hmm. he would have been so perfect with the with the Brosnan era. But uh, it didn't happen. So, the only real difference between these two stories is City on Fire is start to finish chronological. Okay, It's the same damn story. If you take all the beats of Reservoir Dogs... Um, that Tarantino, you know, introduced. I mean, Tarantino was his first main feature. No one really knew who he was yet. Right. No one knew what a Tarantino movie looked like, and he introduced himself by taking chronology and just throwing it to the wind. Which is what often uh, happens in pulp novels, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, the, the the general story here, if you've never seen either, is you've got a group of guys about to do a jewelry heist in a big jewelry store, and one of them is an undercover cop who has infiltrated them. Um, in City on Fire, Chow Yun-Fat is the undercover cop, uh, and his sort of mentor within the within the thieves is a, is another really cool actor named Danny Lee. Now, if you've ever seen John Woo's The Killers, uh, they're on the opposite sides of the law. Uh, Chow Yun-Fat was an assassin; Danny Lee was a cop. So, like the two of them are like a really neat team um, in both of these movies. Um, so, on, on City on Fire, Chow Yun-Fat infiltrates we know we're with him the entire time we know who he is we know that we know that that he is in danger at all times tarantino reservoir dogs tim roth is your cop and you don't realize until somewhat into the movie not deeply deeply into the movie but we reveal later way later than city on fire does that this is actually your cop uh the danny lee character is pretty much harvey keitel Mm -hmm. um there are some switches here. You know, Chalian Fat is about when you know one of the. Uh, if we're going to make a list of the hundred, hell, the ten coolest actors uh, of our lifetime, I, I would have Chalian Fat on there. Okay, uh, Tim Roth, yeah, is a really is a hell of an actor. Oh, cool is yeah. not the first thing I think of when I think of him. If anybody was the cool one in Reservoir Dogs, I would say it was Harvey Keitel. Okay, interesting. All right. um, so you know, I mean, I'm not saying that that I'm not saying that uh, Tarantino totally ripped off 
City on Fire. Right. Because he did, he did sort of redistribute the coolness factor to right. different characters. And there are elements um, of the killing and uh, and the big combo and and, and right. yeah, but but but, but Lady and and yeah, I mean he, Tarantino loves to list his influences right. because it's better than listing his film school that he never went. <laughs> right, to. Right, right, right. He likes to say, "Here's how many more of these I've seen than you have." Mm-hmm. But it's 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 just you know the, the thing that makes Reservoir Dogs neat is is that whole mercurial narrative style where you don't know where he's going to take mm-hmm. you next, and that to me is really th- the biggest thing that he brings to City on Fire that's not already there. So yeah, there it is, Reservoir Dogs. That's that's who I'm going with for the one that denies its roots. <laughs> okay. Not that it really does. <laughs> now you definitely surprised me with that, and uh, okay. I think I'm going to surprise you maybe even more with mine because, okay. admittedly, it's a kind of sorta. Uh, I'll say okay. my runner-ups were uh, Fool's Gold, you know, mm. with uh, Matthew McConaughey and um, mm-hmm. um, Kate Hudson, which is essentially another remake of The Deep. In fact, they even use the same historical background. Of you know uh, the, the various Spanish ships and the treasures that were on those ships, and I'm like, wow. But you know, it's an Andy Tennant film who did Ever After and Anna and the King and mm-hmm. Hitch and what have you, and it's got the same kind of very pleasant vibe to it that makes it enjoyable. Uh, another runner-up would be the three recent Planet of the Apes reboots because they actually take their prime narrative from the last two original Apes films. You know, all three of those films are essentially narrative reworkings of the main plots from Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which are two films which probably among Apes fans get the most drubbing, but I think they reworked all of those themes and narratives and concepts into three fantastic films, which even supersedes uh, some of the Apes uh, uh, follow-ups. Uh, but the one I'm going to have to go with, and I know this is going to requ- uh, uh, create some serious WTF head scratching. Right. I'm going to go with Skyfall. I'd like to start with some simple word associations. Just tell me the first word that pops into your head. For example, I might say day, and you might say wasted. Gun. Short. Agent. Provocateur. Woman. Provocatrix. Heart. Target. Bird. Sky. M. Pitch. Sunlight. Swim. Moonlight. Dance. Murder. Employment. Country. England. Skyfall. Skyfall. This is going well. Why and how? Okay. I'm going to sit back and listen. (laughs) Okay. Because. I'm going to hold your beer. You go. Okay. (laughs) Well, because actually a large portion of that film is actually a cloaked narrative remake of The Man with the Golden Gun. And not necessarily the book but the 1974 film, which departs considerably from Fleming's original wow. book. Now, what it does take from... The, now, obviously, everyone knows or should know that, um, yeah, while there are a few Bond films that have come directly from the novels, Dr. Noah from Russia with Love, Goldfinger to a certain degree, uh, Thunderball, which actually was started as an original screenplay, uh, obviously the Daniel Craig version of Casino Royale, uh, a lot of those are taken directly from the books. You even have movies like For Your Eyes Only, 
um, and The Living Daylights and Octopussy, which used elements from various short stories and strung them together into one new narrative. So, yeah, the Bond films have always done that. And to a certain degree, Skyfall takes some elements from the novel, The Man with the Golden Gun. Primarily, it's how the story opens. Uh, the novel, The Man with the Golden Gun, was came right after the novel, You Only Live Twice. At the end of You Only Live Twice, the book, Bond and Blofeld disappear in kind of a Holmes uh, uh, Moriarty over Rickenbach Falls kind of thing. And uh, the novel even ends with Bond missing in action, presumed dead, and his obituary. The next novel, The Man with the Golden Gun, which was Ian Fleming's last Bond novel before he died, opens with Bond being missing and presumed dead for over a year. And he eventually shows up in London. And um, in the book, he's actually been found and brainwashed by uh, Soviet Russia to assassinate M. And when that assassination attempt fails, he is essentially um, to be put out to pasture and not, not not necessarily retired, but retired in the intelligence community sense of the word. But M gets his back and decides to help him redeem himself. She sends him off on a mission to find the assassin Scaramanga and knowing that he probably isn't entirely back to normal, but the logic is... Uh, I, I may have said she in the book. Mm. M is he, sorry. But um, right, right. Um, uh, and M sends him off knowing that he may not come back and he probably won't come back. But if he doesn't, well, they were gonna, he was going to be assassinated. He was going to be executed anyway, you know, as a traitor. But uh, if he does, then this will prove his worth as, as a double O and prove that he is back. So that uh, the movie Skyfall kind of opens with that. The rest, though, is pretty much taken from the Man with the Golden Gun, the film. And it took me a while to really notice all of these similarities. First of all, there's the Asian setting of the story. The novel, The Man with the Golden Gun, took place in Jamaica. Skyfall takes place in Asia, as did the film, The Man with the Golden Gun. Secondly, using a bullet fragment to establish a trail leading to the villain is taken from the film, The Man with the Golden Gun. That is also in Skyfall. The idea of the girlfriend mistress of the villain feeling like a prisoner and she makes a deal with Bond to lead him to the villain in order to free herself, but she ends up dead for her trouble. That is taken from the film, The Man with the Golden Gun. (laughs) That's not in the book. Uh, Even the idea of an old-fashioned pistol duel of sorts, only um, in in Skyfall, it's Bond and the villain uh, Silva kind of doing the apple shot off the head thing, although it's using a glass of scotch. Uh, Whereas in the the film The Man with the Golden Gun, it's more a pistol that dawn kind of thing. And probably most importantly, um, in the book, and even Christopher Lee said this about the Scaramanga character, in the book The Man with the Golden Gun is pretty much a thug. Um, in the film, he's a little more interesting because he's made the dark mirror image of Bond. And that is at the crux, that is at the central nervous system of Skyfall. In fact, yes, uh, Silva is the dark version of Bond. In fact, they sort of become, in an odd way, brothers out for mother's affections. In a sense, it's almost a version of uh, Shakespeare's um, King Lear. You know, King, King Lear. Lear. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a gender, uh, <laughs> uh, different version of King Lear. Uh, with two sons. <laughs> and um, uh, even the film Skyfall, its entire visual design is based on reflections and images. And it took me a while to notice this. Right at the very beginning, when Bond is in the islands and he's you know enjoying death, as he said, <laughs> and he sees hmm. the report on the news on CNN about the attack on MI6 headquarters, he sees the report, and it took me a while to notice this, 
in the mirror at the bar. He doesn't see the TV directly. He sees the TV in a mirror reflection. That is, the TV's behind him. He sees it in the mirror in front of him. And it's almost like, at least what I got from that, is he's almost thinking... He is so he he was so pissed at M not having confidence in him. It's almost like maybe he even thought of doing something like that, but he didn't. <laughs> and the whole rest of the movie, so many scenes take place against reflective images, um, against glass and against mirrors. And you have scenes, all these scenes where Bond emerges from the shadows and goes back in the shadows, and Silva does the same exact thing. So they're dark mirror images of one another. That is from the film version, The Man with the Golden Gun. And I've never heard anybody say that, but I would bet no. my mortgage that the writers deliberately took narrative elements from the film version of The Man with the Golden Gun for Skyfall. Wow. Well played, sir. Now I have to check both of those out. Because I've, I've seen both of those plenty, never noticed any of them. Very cool. Very cool. That's, I've never seen them anywhere near each other. It's always been like a, over a year apart. Uh-huh. But now I want to watch them back to back. Cool. That's, that's great. It is time for the mortals to pay. My child waits to do your will. us. Release the Kraken! big fan thank you for all your great films thank you and my question is how do you feel about the horror film remake trend in hollywood that's going on right now and also about your uh, halloween movie that rob samba remade (laughs) did you like it oh god God. (laughs) uh those are great questions I, I thought that he took away the mystique of the of the story by explaining too much about the guy I don't care about that. It's supposed to be a force of nature. He's supposed to be almost supernatural. Knowing about that uh, was, and he was too big. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't normal. <laughs> anyway, I mean, anyway. Great. Well, thank you. John Carpenter, during a 2015 sit down at the New York Film Academy. So, next up, uh, a remake mm-hmm. which you actually like more than the original. And I'm probably going to get into a lot of trouble. Might even get some hate mail for this one. But I'm going to have to go with the 2010 version of Clash of the Titans. Really? Yeah. Right. Now, the runner-ups would definitely be Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, um, uh, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I really love those originals. Uh, I think the reason I'm going with Clash of the Titans is because um, so much of what we like or dislike very honestly it has less to do with the actual film or song or whatever and more to do with the life significance that that film or song personally carried for us for example okay. i remember obviously everybody despises jar jar binks you know in the um you know uh, newer star wars films or technically older star wars films 
But I remember George Lucas once mentioning that there's a whole lot of young kids who actually like Jar Jar Binks because he kind of represents them. And then later, by the time we get to the third film in that new trilogy, Jar Jar has kind of gone from being a child to being a member of the, the, the Senate, or at least an assistant in the Senate. And I always said, eh, I'm sorry, but I don't buy it. But... Uh, years later, I actually started seeing postings and people talking about who people who were eight, nine, ten, eleven years old when um, uh, uh, the Phantom Menace came out, talking about how yeah they grew up with Jar Jar, and they actually liked the character, and or at least the character meant something to them. And I was like, good lord, he was right. And while I still despise Jar Jar, I mean I'm still not happy. I'm still not crazy about the Ewoks. However. I do understand how there are people who grew up with them and have a fond affection for the Ewoks and for Jar Jar. Similarly, I remember when the remake of Clash of the Titans uh, was just starting to be advertised and you were seeing trailers and I started hearing people saying things like, they're sullying a classic. And my first reaction was, well, to be honest with you, the original film really wasn't a classic. Even Ray Harryhausen admits that that film wasn't his finest hour because uh, they had gone to a new studio, MGM, after uh, Columbia, who had done most of Harryhausen's other films, uh, with a few exceptions here and there. But they had gone to MGM, and they had a huge budget, comparatively, compared to the other Harryhausen films, like Jason the Argonauts, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and the others. And uh, they had a large cast of famous people, including Laurence Olivier, and... Um, Harryhausen pretty much had to function more as producer and less as special effects technician and creative heart of the film. And he always regretted that. And there are just some sequences in that film that don't work, uh, if you want to be honest, and are and, and fall flat. However, what the film does, great. I mean, it's got a wonderful sense of old-fashioned brio, which most films have never captured. That's fantastic. Um... It's also got some fantastic visual effects sequences. Uh, um, it's got some lame ones too, but the ones that work are fantastic. Like uh, just the, yeah. the, the the flashing color and the firelight with when Pegasus escapes, and obviously yeah. the Medusa sequence uh, and uh, lit by firelight. They're phenomenal. Now, what I love about the remake, uh, which is directed by Louis Leterrier, who obviously um, he directed movies like uh, uh, Trans- the Transporter, and he directed the um, the Incredible Hulk. We don't direct the Incredible Hulk with. Um, Edward Norton. What I like about his version is that he kind of remains faithful to all that was great about the original. It's got that sense of brio. It's got that R-star cast. It's got that fantastic pacing that a lot of adventure films don't have. But he loses what was bad about the original film, starting with fucking Bubo. Okay? <laughs> okay? All right? They even have a good joke about Bubo in there. <laughs> you know, exactly, yeah. And yeah. a great joke about why Bubo was not going to be in this movie. And um, at the time, I think the biggest debit of the original Clash of the Titans was that it came on the heels of the Star Wars films. And to a degree, I guess, I don't know whether it was the studio or whoever, felt that in order to be successful, it needed to borrow elements from the Star Wars films, which I don't think it did. You know, Bubo was one. Bubo was essentially a, a, a retread of R2-D2. You know, he's just a gold-plated retread. He even speaks and mm-hmm. clicks and whistles like R2 did. And uh, a lot of the humor is almost Disney the black hole uh, kind of humor. It's kind of kitty humor, and it doesn't really fit in with the edginess of Harryhausen's take on that mythology. I think the remake loses that which weighed down the original and plays up that which made the original great. 
So I like the remake for that reason. And to be honest with you, I like the sequel, Wrath of the Titans, even more than I like the remake of Clash of the Titans. So the sequel mm. to the remake, I like better than the original, <laughs> which inspired them both. <laughs> because by the time we get to that sequel, you know, and obviously uh, I love how in the original Clash of the Titans, you had Zeus by Lawrence, portrayed by Lawrence Olivier as the main god. But I love how in the remake of Clash and the sequel, Wrath of the Titans, you have the brothers Zeus played by Liam Neeson and Hades played by um, Ray Fiennes together again after Schindler's List. Um, I love the dynamic between those two. And it's kind of like in the first film, he's very much a villain. In the second film, I saw Wrath of the Titans as sort of being the Greek or the Greek mythology version of Godfather Part 2 where Hades kind of becomes Fredo and while you still don't agree with what he's been doing you understand why he's kind of been screwed over by fate and by the family and that's why he reacted the way he did so you kind of get more of that in the second film so for those reasons I think those films that remake and that sequel to the remake work really really well I think they carry off what Harryhausen originally intended to do in the original Clash but wasn't able to do because of studio interference and the big budget and what have you hmm wow well, alright okay, so. and you know what I, I agree that I like the sequel more mm-hmm. Um, you've raised my appreciation for the first one. You know, uh, I mean, for the for the first right. So wow. So ho- hopefully, fans will have listened. Fans of the original will have listened to my whole explanation, and they won't come okay. after me now. And, and and to be honest, I, mean, I, I love 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 the original mm-hmm. one as a kid. Yeah, like you say, same but here. It, it, it aged a little hokey, except for the specific sequences you mentioned. Medusa is still one of my yeah. All-time favorite from Harryhausen and effect sequences in general, and also it's still just a hell of a score. Yeah, 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 and but, it's got uh, this big bold attitude that is really awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to go with one that that actually kind of shows how dumb I was as a little kid. Oh, do you have runner-ups first? Oh yeah. Well, I got one runner. Okay. Up. All right. Uh, my my runner-up is, is and this my runner-up will probably make more people angry than my actual choice. <laughs> Uh, the runner-up was the Thomas Crown Affair. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. Um, I just I, I, having having now lived in Boston, I thought I thought it, it used the location okay. pretty well. Okay. The original with Stephen Queen and Ally McGraw. Oh, um, uh, and, and I'm uh, sorry, Stephen Queen and Faith Dunaway. Sorry yeah, about yeah. that. Yes, uh, but you know the 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 remake was just that much more sweeping and grand and f- fun. Okay. You know, and for for a character who's supposed to be who's doing this mostly out of boredom, I got more of a sense of boredom and then actual fun from the remake. But it just it just every, everything about it was just more enjoyable. Okay, okay. I don't know. I don't know what it was about the original that just doesn't resonate with me the way other people do. So I'm probably alone in this, okay. and I'm fine with that. But yeah, I just, I just, it's not that I dislike the original. It's just that I love the remake that much. Okay. Um, so it, it was just a blast. It was you know two people mm-hmm. who are who are great in everything they do, each raising each other's okay. game. But the one that I'm really going to go with, the one that I wanted to see at seven years old so bad because with a title like this, oh, it's got to have magic and thrills, and it's going to be amazing, and there's going to be like a guy with a cloak, and he's going to shoot lightning out of his eyes and and fire out of his fingers and stuff. When you've got a title called Sorcerer, how could it not have that, right? <laughs> okay, right, 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 right. This is the wrong road! 
bridge. And you're gonna guide me. Because I can't do it alone. I told my dad, we gotta see this movie called Sorcerer that just came out a few months oh, after Star wow. Wars. It's gonna be even bigger than Star Wars because it's got that title, right? Uh, seven years old, I stumbled. Right, 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 right. My dad, my dad loved it. Oh, this is great. And my dad, you know, as we're driving home, said, you know, there's this French thing called Wages of Fear. I saw it when I was a little older than you now. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, so, 1953, Henri Georges Clouseau writes and directs this this pretty damn cool yeah, thriller yeah. called Wages of Fear um, which if you have any doubt that it's a, uh, a uh, part of the canon of classics not only is it on Criterion Blu-ray not only was it on Criterion DVD this is one of the original Criterion Laserdiscs oh wow back when they weren't cranking them out as Stelly's are so when you're, when you're part of the Criterion Laserdisc yeah group, that's really you, you, a, a rarefied breed Right, you got a you got a couple of stripes on you for that. So this is this is how deeply and how long Wages of Fear has been cons- pretty highly regarded. Um, it's about a group of down on their luck guys in South America who get hired uh, to there's a there's a there's a fire in an oil well and the fire just won't go out. Nothing that's doing is and this is all this is not on camera. This is all right. The mission there's this fire and nothing else can put it out. So these guys get hired to drive three truckloads of nitroglycerin up a mountain road. And this is a mountain road in, like, the 30s or 40s. Uh, a movie takes place in... movies made in 53. Right. I'm not 100% wait, wait, sure wait, it's wait, supposed wait, to be wasn't it, um, Forgive me for... Uh, now, wasn't it, yes. uh, wasn't it, like, uh, Unstable Dynamite in the original? Yes. Well, yes, you're right. I'm yeah, you just said you're Nitro, right. which, dynamite, is the, which is in Sorcerer. The remake. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So, Dynamite in the original, Nitroglycerin in William Friedkin's remake, right. um, up these this treacherous mountain road that, you know, at any moment threatens to blow yeah, up the uh, trucks. Hit a bad pothole, um, goodbye. That'll do it, yeah. And, you know, not every truck makes it. Right. Spoiler. Um, and... Again, with spoilers, and I'll do this as delicately as I can. The thing I love about the things I love about Sorcerer over Wages of Fear, which basically tells the same story. William Friedkin adapted it in '77, uh, not too long after The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. It made him, you know, a pretty A-list mm-hmm. guy. Um, are the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the thing about the thing about uh, the beginning of Wages of Fear it's, it's kind of like Treasure Sierra Madre it's just here's some guys down on, down on the luck and now they're going to go off and do a right. thing and at the risk of sounding spoon fed it does not spoon feed the thing that the sorcerer does is show you how each of these guys came to get there yeah and you actually honestly this, relate with them and say yeah I would do the same thing right yeah. yeah, and not only that, but and it's a short sequence. Each one of them gets four or five mm-hmm, minutes. Mm-hmm. So by the time you're actually in the jungle, you've already been watching the movie for twenty minutes. But if you pay real attention to each of their backstories of how they got there, they're also telecasting to you a little bit. It's more more than more than spoon feeding. It's a little more foreshadowing of how they why they will or will not survive. Mm-hmm. Like each of their stories tell you something about the man to let you know that this guy's already doomed or this guy's a survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just you know those those backstories really resonated with me and 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 as a little kid I was sitting there going why is this uh, what the, the there's no magic <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what the what the hell is all this but but each of those so but basically by not doing that but I'm sorry by by um, leading with this it almost it basically leads with. 
four or five quick, intense little whammos mm-hmm. of of like here's something to rope you in. Now we're going to move on to something else. We, we just introduce you to a character. Now you're really caught up in this guy. We're going over here instead. Mm-hmm. Now you're really caught up in this guy. Done moving over here instead. You go wait a minute. Who the hell are all these guys? Oh wait a minute. 15, 20 minutes later, here's all these guys all sitting within the same town far away from where they were. All of them are endangered. And now I'm that much more invested in all of them. So it was just, it was just a great setup that was not part of the original movie that pretty much has to be handed to Freakin. Um, and then the ending. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And here's where I'll have to tread carefully to not well, how spoiler. About, but you know, I don't think yes, you need sir. to say anything about the ending. I think... Just, just leave, it leave it at that? Just Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Um, I mean, it is it, it is it is an original addition. Um, yes, very. You know, I think it's. I, I think that's enough to say. Yes, and it. Yeah, it, it's the only thing I'll, I'll say is to me, the, the, the wages of fear for as great as the entire movie is, the ending undercuts it. Okay, I would agree. I was disappointed by that ending, and the sorcerer. That ending made me just about jump out of my seat and go, "That's." Exactly. Yep. For this story. Yep. Um, and then one other little thing I'll throw in: um, uh, our our lead character in uh, Wages of Fear, um, Eve Montan. He's a little too dreamy. Okay. You know? all right, all right, he's all right, just yeah. he's okay. a little too perfect for this world. Like, yeah, go do some romantic comedies. You're right. a beautiful Whereas man. Roy you Scheider. Yeah, we need you in a suit. Is, yeah. Roy Scheider. This is the man who killed Jaws, crashed Blue Thunder, and redeemed Hal Nine Thousand. This guy is your resourceful <laughs> exactly, guy. Yeah. You know. So there's just something about Scheider that you know. Same as I mean, it, it, you can sort of parallel him to to. Uh, um, Sheriff Brody, there is this just just great resourcefulness about right. him. Although, um, although none yes. of the characters in the film are good guys, nice guys, right. and their right. backgrounds clearly make Show make it very clear. In fact, they're yeah. all there for very dark, bad reasons, and yeah. they almost have to kind of go through hell for an almost kind of personal redemption, or even give their right. lives for any kind of right. personal redemption, uh, which is which is pretty intense. Which to a seven year old, I think that was entirely lost okay, on okay. me. But but I, and I hated the movie for at first mm-hmm. just because it scared the crap yeah. out of me. But when I saw it later in my teens and I started getting that, that's what made me like it. And by the time I did finally see it again, I had already seen Wages mm-hmm. of Fear, and this is part of what made me like it just that much more. Nice. So um, Wages of Fear, big time Criterion classic for a couple of decades now. Sorcerer, an underrated gem that was recently restored to 4K. Mm-hmm. Check it yeah. out. Unlock the door, do it now, or I'll kill you. Everybody else! This side's facing the window! Control center, call him Pelham 123. Why'd you stop 123? You're all green ahead. Rail control center, do you read me? Who is this? This is a man who's gonna give this city a run for the money. Now, what is the price for New York City hostages this morning? What do you think, a million a piece is too high? Oh, I'm not a hostage negotiator. I'm a civil service employee. Oh, I think you'll do just fine. Now, what time do you got on your watch? 2.13. 59 minutes, I'm going to start killing passengers. You don't want innocent people dying, do you? You tell me.
it was interesting because I had been thinking about War of the Worlds most of my adult life <clears throat> because, number one, um, I saw the original movie that I don't, I think I saw it on television, but it came out in 53, the George Powell film. And then when I was in college, I read the book for the first time. And I thought the book was extraordinary. So I had always had War of the Worlds in mind. And then a couple movies came out that kind of cherry picked the best elements from War of the Worlds over the last 15 years. And I thought, well, maybe it's been just cherry picked to death and there's nothing left. <clears throat> then I read the novel again and I realized, oh my goodness, this is a entirely new way of telling the story that no one's ever seen before. And so I got re-inspired and I approached Tom and Paula yeah. Wagner, Tom's partner and producer. You were shooting Catch Me. I was shooting Catch Me. And I, I came over to show you the mm. trailers. That's to right. To Minority. That's right. And you said, he listed out, remember you said three titles and I went, I said, here's three titles I want to work with you on. And I was, it was one of the three and Tom said, well, what are you talking about? War of the Worlds. Yeah, we're going to make War of the Worlds. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's a movie I've wanted to make probably most of my career. Our next topic are, are remakes that surprised us, that we, you know, not necessarily that we thought were better than the original, but that we honestly thought were maybe even going to suck. Um, mm -hmm. Things that we didn't think we would like, but we thought, okay, we'll give this one a chance. Uh, and for me, big runner-up was, was Rob Zombie's Halloween. Oh, wow, okay. Um, which, you know, some people would argue maybe it's not even a remake since he totally restructured the story, but n I'll push back yeah. on that. And I'm going to say that's I a agree. remake, and I thought he did way better than I imagined he would. Okay. Um, and the one that I'm actually going to go with is uh, Let Me In. You can come in. was a remake of the um, Scandinavian horror, vamp both vampire movies, remake of a right. film called Let the Right One In. Mm -hmm. And uh, both are about uh, a, a bullied, put-upon young boy uh, in, a, in sort of a housing project building, like a, like a series of buildings, that, like this community that he lives in. And he's bullied at home, he's bullied at school. Um, and he meets slash sort of has first crush on this young girl, very quiet young girl, who she and her father move into their same um, housing development, and she may or may not be a vampire. Mm -hmm. um, and it's... it's it take, Both films take place in the 1980s, so the period in which Craig and I are particularly cognizant of. Mm -hmm. um, and in fairness to let the right one in, maybe it's just that there were references that I didn't get from having not grown up in Norway or Sweden <laughs> uh -huh. in the 80s. Okay. Um, 
but let me let me in. I feel like used its '80s references really, really well. Um, nice. They they use you know Ronald Reagan speeches and 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 Russian uh, Cold War events happening on the news on TV really well. And basically, as an example of the thing, a thing that helped me realize how much let let me in use that well was how unwell I feel like the first season of Stranger Things did. I okay. Feel, I feel like the second season of Stranger Things did way better to nail the '80s than the first. Somehow, I knew you were going to come to Stranger Things. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and let me in. I feel like is it uses captures the '80s as well as that second season. Mm-hmm. Um, another great thing about about let me in is just the cast. It's it's a whole bunch of character actors. It's Richard Jenkins and Carlo Bono and oh, Elias Cotinas. Um There's no no big names in here. Cody Smith, McPhee, and Grace Moretz are, are, wow. are kids who are a way bigger deal now, but this movie's from 2011. Mm-hmm. They were not as nearly as well-known, and they have this great supporting cast of great character actors who just sort of help them really do their best. Um, and as much as I loved Let the Right One In, um, Let Me In made me realize how much more I could love these characters. And I hope it's not because of the language barrier. I don't think I'm that narrow-minded. But, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, they just, you know, for characters that I feel like I did not want to see remade, very quickly they got me over that. Cool. And, you know, I definitely got to give a huge shout-out with that particular film to uh, uh, director Matt Reeves. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because um, since we're talking about you know remakes, redos, reimaginings, whatever you want to call them, um, he knocked it out of the park with uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and yes. War. For the yeah. Planet of the Apes, which are also remakes, which we kind of mentioned earlier, exactly. as using material from the original Apes mm-hmm. films and repurposing them into the new films, which are far better than anyone ever expected. So, exactly. um, you know, huge shout out. And, and, and word is that he's uh, slated to direct the uh, the Batman. Batman, yep. You know, so yeah. we'll, uh, I mean, if, you know, uh, let me in and the Apes films and, you know, Cloverfield and other stuff that he's done. Um, are any indication, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the Batman as well. <laughs> cool. Cool. So, for me, my uh, fave which surprised me, I uh, didn't think I'd like it, but did, the runner-ups would be uh, 2014's RoboCop, mm. which was a hell of a lot better than I thought it would be. And the other runner-up would, def- would be one that most people hated, the 2012 redo of Total Recall. Really? But not the theatrical version. Actually, the extended director's cut. Okay. The, the theatrical version was 118 minutes. The extended director's cut is 130 minutes. And there are a lot of differences. Um, there are, believe it or not, 97 differences uh, between just uh, additional and extended scenes to alternate camera angles. Huh. But some of the more interesting additions would be, for example, I love how in, in, in the extended version of this film... You know how you have the Hauser character, who was Douglas Quaid's original identity. Mm-hmm. In the extended version, the Hauser character in the flashback sequences is even played by a different actor. Um, oh, wow. Obviously, uh, uh, Quaid is played by Colin Farrell. Hauser is played by Ethan Hawke. You know? Interesting. Yeah, so the Ethan Hawke stuff is not in the theatrical version, but it is in the extended version. Also, there are just so many more scenes which make it very much more Philip K. Dick. It makes it much more of a mind puzzle than the theatrical version is. Right from the very opening sequence, uh, the opening dream sequence, which uh, explains some things to come later. So I would say, for those who despised the remake because it didn't do the mind-effing aspect of the Paul Verhoeven film, 
Um, the director's cut does do that. So anyway, but that's not my choice. That's one of the runner-ups. But it's definitely worth yeah, worth a shout-out. And, I mean, part of me says maybe I should have gone with that one, but I didn't. But uh, the one I have to go with is uh, Tony Scott's 2009 remake of The Taking of Hell on 123. Farber, you there, buddy? Yeah, I'm here. Little birdie told me the mayor just walked in. Can I talk to him? Can he hear me? How does he know I'm here? Does he have a camera in here? Can he hear me? Uh, we can, we can, we can, we can, we can all hear you here. Yes. Good, good. Uh, so tell him, uh, tell him I want to make him a deal. Tell him I make him a deal right now. Okay. All right. Well, come on, speak up, Mr. Mayor. You're talking to your constituents. We got a, a train full of registered voters. Don't you care? Don't you care about your voters? This is not a good idea, Your Honor. Don't don't talk. Don't engage with him. I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for a long time, Your Honor. Come on, buddy, speak up. Yes, this is the mayor. Hey, hey, hey good to meet you, man. Hey, listen. I want to tell you, you could come down here, and I will trade you for all these passengers in the train. How's that? Okay, you could save the lives of, of 17 New Yorkers. That's a good deal. What do you think? That is another one like Alfie, where most of the negative responses, even before the damn film opened, were, well, you haven't seen the original, to which I said, yeah, I have. I even read the original novel when it was first published. In the original film, I felt, was an improvement on that novel and that it was faithful story-wise, but it also added this wonderfully cynical sense of humor you know, to the proceedings. But also, in the same way and for the same reason that I love Alfie, uh, the redo of Alfie, is because the redo of The Taking of Pelham takes into account, it takes its DNA into the modern era. In this case... Whereas with Alfie, it was the AIDS era and the changing conception of male and female gender roles, blah, 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 blah. In this case, it's the sometimes useful, sometimes detrimental era of instant access and smartphones, where both the police and hijackers and even hostages can learn more about all those involved and even sneak information in and out on the sly. You know, it just totally changes the game. It's the same story, basically. But it changes the game by placing it into a setting of instant information access that totally opens up a whole new avenue and makes it more interesting. Also, I love how the uh, film, um, which, by the way, is the fourth of five films that Tony Scott and Denzel Washington did together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the first three were Crimson Tide, uh, uh, Man on Fire, and Deja Vu. Uh, the Taking of Pelham was the fourth one, and the final one was Unstoppable. And I love all of those films. And Man on Fire is another Lots remake. remake, yep. <laughs> yeah, which I might like better than the original, too. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, Taking of Pelham, I like, I wouldn't say more than the original. I love the original. But uh, the remake is a hell of a lot better than I thought it would be, especially because of that updating things into the modern era. Uh, and also... Because I love what they do with the two main characters, the Denzel Washington character and the John Travolta character. Um, they're a lot less black and white than they were in the original film. Uh, Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw playing those characters. The, I love how the Denzel Washington character is, I wouldn't necessarily say dirty, but he's someone who you would understand why earlier in life he may have bent the rules because everybody else is bending the rules. Mm-hmm. 
and he felt, what the fuck? This is just the way the world is. Um, don't blame the player. Blame mm-hmm. the game kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And John Travolta's character is sort of the extreme version of that, where even though he, he is a straight-up psychopath, he's, he, well, he, he's a sociopath. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, you really do kind of get his motivation. To him, he's just going along with the don't hate the play, I hate the game mindset of the era, the same era that gave us Bernie Madoff and Ron and all those other corporate financial scandals. Mm-hmm. So he's like, well, if they can get away with it, I'm going to do it too. I'm no worse than they are. And I like that contemporary um, sensibility that it brings, uh, technological and Socio, financial, philosophical—if you will. Forgive me for sounding like some <laughs> freaking Village Voice article, but you know what I mean. I love how it takes all of those considerations into the new version and and, and uh, uses them. Now, as far as this is going to be fun, favorite remake. I'm almost ashamed to admit that I love. Mm-hmm. The runners-up, which are just as much fun, would be Chuck Russell's 1988 redo of The Blob. <laughs> I love that film, even though I probably shouldn't. It's not a great film, but it's really cool. And Russell would, of course, go on to direct movies like The Mask and Eraser. Uh, another runner-up would be um, Paul W.S. Anderson's Death Race, uh, wow, which, is, really? which is a redo of Roger Corman's Death Race 2000. But uh, the one i got to go with, and... I, I gotta go with the 1976 remake of King Kong. Really? <laughs> Bold. Dino's All King right. Kong. Fire away. No, don't put me down. Don't put me down. Please. Hold on to me. No, hold on to me or they'll kill you. love that movie and I totally admit that this is my Jar Jar Binks although it does have some the film itself does have some fantastic elements most notably its cinematography and its tone its vibe which are very much aided abetted and carried along by John Barry's score which uh, and I know this might be sacrilege to some when I've said this in the past but I feel it's the best of all the Kong scores before and after I think it outdoes Max Steiner's score to the original 1930s film. I think it's much more intriguing and romantic and magical than James Newton Howard's fantastic score to the Peter uh, uh, Jackson film. Um, It's got, I think, John Barry's score and the cinematography just captures that beauty and the beast romance, which maybe the film itself doesn't capture. Uh, And I, I think the score captures that feeling better than any of the other versions of Kong. And for that reason, when I continually rewatch this film, I am carried away by it, even though by today's standards, as great as Rick Baker and Carlo Rambaldi's effects are, in some areas they're pretty cheesy, but in other areas they work. Um, the performances are a little campy, as is the movie itself, but John Gillerman somehow brings a tone to the proceedings that is just magical. 
And at the end, when Kong dies, I actually feel more for the Kong character in this film at the end than I did in the original film. I would say the Peter Jackson film made me feel a little more. But at the time I first saw this, and granted, this just could be because I was a little kid when this movie first came out. And it just touched me emotionally. It's like, oh, Kong, you know. And I was more familiar with this film at the time than I was with the original Kong. So I'm sure that all probably has something to do with it. So like I said, it's very subjective. It's my Jar Jar Binks. But <laughs> that would be, you know, my remake that I'm ashamed to admit I love. Yeah, Nice. I, I, I love that film. <laughs> well, I mean, my, I'll, I'll barely need to, need to explain my runner-up, uh, The Wicker Man. Huh. Um, it's so damn bizarre. It's it's not. I'm not going to defend it as a good movie, but it cracks me up and I love it. And it's just cage at his most caginess and just maniacal and bizarre. And it's, you know when you have a when you have a hero who's more batshit crazy than the villains, <laughs> right? You don't get too many of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I'm going. So, so that's that's my runner up. And the one that I'm really going with, since I didn't get to use Roger, a Roger Donaldson film, Donaldson film for the bounty earlier, uh, I'm going to use Roger Donaldson's uh, 1994 remake, The Getaway. Really? Which is a remake wow. of Sam Peckinpah's 1972 film. God damn it, it wasn't our fault. It was the only way. You stupid bitch, you should have told me! You were supposed to make a deal with him, not fuck his brains out! The deal wasn't good enough! Then you should have walked away! And you'd still be sitting in that shithole! I trusted you. Yeah, and I came through for you, oh, too. Yeah, repeatedly. Fuck you! You weren't straight with me! I didn't think you could handle the truth. And I was right. You weren't sure which one of us you were going to shoot, huh? Is that what you think? Yeah, that's what I think. But I'm sorry. Sorry you shot Benyon? No, I'm sorry I fucked him. Because I did it for you and you're not worth it. I guess you did what you had to do to get me out. You'd do the same for me, wouldn't you, Doc? You'd humiliate yourself for me, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? So basically, I'm I'm I'm, I'm kind of crapping all over Steve McQueen today, and I don't mean to be doing. No, it. no, I understand, <laughs> but you don't know. No, but okay, you know, I just I look at it as putting some bricks on the other side of the scale because. Mm-hmm. Most critics crapped all over, just as they crapped all over Dino's King Kong. Exactly. Most critics exactly. crapped all over Ronald Roger Donaldson's The Getaway, right. and I think more because of the more because of their personal love of the original than that in the remake, which was genuinely bad. Uh, and, and another thing I'm, that I recall, I, mean, I remember some reviews at the time, and most of the reviews I read had less to do with the movie than with the um, the newly. The, the personal relationships of Kim Basinger and Alec Baldwin. Okay, okay, exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, they they had they had already earned a reputation for being difficult when they were falling in love a few years earlier on another movie called The Marrying Man. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and it, I mean, they were taking the task for that pretty heavily. So as soon as they tried to make another movie together, it was immediately branded as a as a um, a vanity project mm-hmm. um, of theirs. And the real truth of this, uh, while while both versions of The Getaway are based on a novel by Jim Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, both are also based on screenplays by Walter Hill. Walter Hill, yes. Uh, yes. Walter Hill and Baldwin were pals by at this point and had been looking forward to working together. We're trying to trying to bring this thing 
to light, and they decided let's let's redo the getaway. He's going to be able yeah. to get another crack. They at were it. actually He'll... slated to work on the remake of the Fugitive together, right? Exactly. Yeah. So they, they, when that didn't happen, they were going to move on with this, and then uh, Hill was even going to direct it, and. Things got in the way. Hill had an opportunity to direct Geronimo, mm-hmm. and then things started falling in place for the getaway. And with Hill's blessing, Baldwin went ahead and 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 basing her together, and they, Roger Donaldson became their director. Um, and it's it's a straightforward high story. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kim Basinger in the remake, Ali McGraw in the original. Uh, a woman whose man is locked in prison, a woman whose man is a master thief. All they need to do for this great heist is to break him out. Yes. Um, uh, Ali McGraw breaks out Steve McQueen, Kim Bas- and they later actually got married not too long after the original movie. Um, Basinger brings out breaks out Alec Baldwin, and then all sorts of bad crap happens. Mm-hmm. Um, both movies had really cool supporting casts. Yeah. Um, uh, the the remake have, you have Michael Madsen, Jennifer Tilly, James Woods, uh, Richard Farnsworth, and a very young wet behind the ears Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, just the thing I love about this is Basinger seized on this being a story about trust, and and they focused immensely on that. And I just got a stronger sense of that. I don't know if it's entirely their performances or also Hill's script or just a combined effort, but it worked for me more thematically than Peckinpah's movie. And Peckinpah himself has said that you know he directed that movie to an extent, but also Steve McQueen kept cherry picking his favorite shots. Mm-hmm. So Peckinpah doesn't feel ultimately that he had a hundred percent control on that. It, you know, it, he did he did his job, but he doesn't feel like it's as Peckinpah a movie as say The Wild Bunch mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Battle of Cable Hogue, which mm-hmm. are you know his to the bone. Yes. Um, and and this and I, have, um, and I have to agree with you on on how I, I definitely feel as though the remake mm-hmm. uh, or, or the uh, Donaldson version yeah. definitely. Um, and again, whether it's Basinger or whether it's Walter Hill, yeah. I yeah. like there's um I don't want to use the word humanity there's more humanity there because it almost seems to blunt the edges of the film but but yeah uh, there's definitely that whole trust issue right. is um is more pronounced more, and more I, than humanity the word that kept popping up for me was raw Okay, raw, uh, and okay. at the time, there was like there was a big deal made about about a love scene between them, mm-hmm. but the scene I remember most is and no spoilers but there's just they have an argument on the side of the road yes. And Which it, they do have in the original film too, but yeah. it doesn't hurt as much. Exactly, yeah, and that's that's so. part of it. I mean, it, it really, if you if you put a gun to my head and say, pick the scene that makes this one better, that's it. Yeah, so that yeah, side yeah. of the road uh-huh. hurt the way a relationship should hurt. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and that's basically why, to me, this version of the the new version, yeah. of the newer version of the Getaway, yeah. uh, one, I'm ashamed to admit to all of it because I don't want to disparage Steve McQueen or Sam Peckinpah, mm-hmm. but but. And because it was so reviled at the time, I mean, even still on Rotten Tomatoes, it's like below forty, I think. But uh, you know, I'll I'll stand up for it uh, against most people, shall we say, and most critics. Um, yeah, I dug it immensely. And, uh, and on that one, I'm going to have to stand here with you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I got cool, one right. person in my corner. <laughs> I'm going to stand here with you. Yeah, I, I've always felt that. I've always felt the same way. Cool. All right. What does the disease want? Wants to turn me into something else. Oh no! A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ah! 
Shh. I meant well. People always mean well. It's not as if she were a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. <laughs> Actually, it's hard to imagine how this project could have worked. Black and white has more impact, and once you know this famous story, it's hard to be shocked as you just sit there and wait for its most famous scenes. And the psychologist's concluding explanations of Norman's behavior, it was as hard to follow now as when I first saw Psycho nearly 40 years ago. What I really feel is, Roger, there are just some roles that you don't attempt. That's improving. right. You do if there's a role in all of film that you just can't duplicate, it's Norman Bates by Anthony. Everybody Perkins. wants to see it's him. It's like somebody else playing Citizen Kane other than Orson Welles. Okay. What's the point? Siskel and Ebert laying down the law on Gus Van Sant's 1998 nearly frame-by-frame -frame remake of Hitchcock's Psycho. Whew. Anyway, now we come to the biggie. Fave right. remake, period. Period. Okay. Uh, All right. Another of, another of my favorites, and one that we've already discussed on, an, on a, another episode, was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation. The one made okay. by three kids right, out right. in the uh, South who just reshot shot for shot right. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, it's just, it's you can find it on, on yeah. DVD, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation. It's just insane. You know, I, that these I actually think it's now available the, on Netflix, too. In fact, is it good? I burned a copy of it from Netflix Good. about two months ago. Yeah. It's a blast. It's fun, and yeah. it's also, you basically watch these kids grow up loving doing something they love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and there's a good, do really good documentary about it, too, so if you can see them both, check them out. Um, but the one I'm going to really go with, I'm also, aside from knocking Steve McQueen today, I'm also kind of knocking French movies <laughs> of the 50s. Uh, in 2002, Irish director... Wrote and directed. Uh, Neil Jordan made a film called The Good Thief. You look good for a man of your age. What age is that? You know, Stone Age. Is it true what they're saying? I don't know what they're saying. You're back in business. Better than wallpaper, isn't it? They're fakes. I know. The originals are in there. And we cracked the ball. Yes. You take your commission. 40%. We've got a realized and a fake. The only guy who could crack the impregnable system is the guy who installed it. You. Me. You're facing a murder rap, tough guy. That's quite a surprise. I don't want any more surprises. Have any luck left? I guess we'll soon find out. The remake of Jean-Pierre Melville's Bob Le Flambeur, Bob okay. the Gambler, from 1956. Okay. Um, uh... Melville's was it was early in his career. It was not the most successful of his, and it kind of got a reappraisal years later. Uh, uh, John Woo and Quentin Tarantino and a few other people cited Melville as a major influence. And in the in the late eighties, early nineties, he started becoming a you know a bit of a he had a resurgence. Mm -hmm. uh, this film was not immensely appreciated in its time. Uh, the Good Thief also not immensely appreciated. Not as near as big a deal for Neil Jordan as. Uh, Crying Game or Interview right. of the Vampire or, or In Dreams. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, this actually also followed when we, uh, another runner-up that I almost had for, for uh, favorite classic was The End of the Affair. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay. It okay, was sure. also Jordan and it was the movie he did before this and it was also, to me, just a really solid remake. Um, Bob LaFlambeur, Bob the Gambler, focuses on a, a career gambler who has 
a run of bad luck at a casino and in a fit of anger he's like screw this I'm going to rob this place I'm going to put together a team and I'm going to get my money out of them one way or another mm-hmm. and that's there's your heist straightforward heist movie um, surprisingly dark ending for you know when you go back and watch some of the French noirs they're not always as bleak endings as the American movies that they were emulating <laughs> in the 40s this true? one was this one was this is one of the ones that goes wow that's, oh, that's rough um, the good thief Semi same story. It's still gamblers, you know, heisting a, a casino. Um, but Jordan adds a heroin addiction to his his Bob. His Bob is played by mm. a man you and I have already discussed, who I view as a national treasure and ever more so for this movie, Mister Nick Nolte, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who's just a damn delight to watch in this movie because he's you know it's it's every time you see him it's not quite like you've ever seen him before before and he's carrying this this heroin addiction and the whole crew is basically they're trying to dry him out and it's this whole protracted sequence where can we even rely on this guy. And if we can't rely on this guy, should he just be our fall guy? Mm-hmm. And this whole extra element of you know who can trust who becomes way more palpable than it was in Bob the Gambler. Um, and as as I did with Wages of Fear and the Sorcerer, I'll just say that that Jordan changes the ending um, <laughs> in a way that I feel is very very well earned. It's mm-hmm. not an ending that it, you know it's not it's not just tacked on. It's he does something totally out of left field, but once it hits, it's so organic that it just made me want to jump up and hug the damn screen. <laughs> um, it's beautiful. And then uh, above and beyond that, above and beyond Nick Nolte, uh, always at the top of his game, and Neil Jordan unfairly forgotten at the top mm-hmm. of his game. Also, just you got an Elliot Goldenthal score and songs from everybody from like Serge Gainsbourg to Leonard Cohen to Bono to the Chemical Brothers. It's kind of timeless. You know, the 50s one is died in the wall, 1956. 50s, like, it's time. just dead. There's no mistaking it. Mm-hmm. There's a timelessness to this movie that feels like it could have been set anywhere from 1968 to last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got, aside from the Golden Thaw score and those pop songs and this beautiful kind of glamorous and lurid cinematography by Christopher Menges. Oh, wow. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's a movie that just makes me so damn happy. Um... And in a in a in a in a in an era where remakes are so readily derided, uh-huh. for one to just make me smile this much that this is why it's got to be my choice. Wow! Yeah. Awesome! Yeah. yeah, awesome. My runner-ups includes one we technically can't mention. It would be John Carpenter's The Thing, mm-hmm. you know? uh, which I do consider a remake, um, right. even though it is taken in a, what we said earlier. Even though it's considered "quote unquote" a more faithful version of the original short story, who goes here mm-hmm. by John W. Campbell. The fact that John Carpenter is a huge Howard Hawks fan. The fact that it borrows a lot of actual images, a, 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 a camera angles and stuff from the original film. Yeah, it's a remake. So even though technically we can't count that one, I'll count it as a runner-up. All right? <laughs> cool. Um, I'll even count uh, another one that we officially can't count as one of my runner-ups. <laughs> all right. The Magnificent Seven. Nice. Both John Sturge's original film, which is a remake of Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and... Anton Fuqua's recent uh, seven, uh, The Magnificent Seven, which I thought did what uh, a bromance film should do, whether it's a John Sturges film like uh, 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 The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, um, or, 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 um, or whether it's a Robert Aldrich film like The Dirty Dozen, The Longest Yard, or Flight of the Phoenix. All those films, or The Eagle Has Landed, all those films 
you remember the characters more yeah. than you remember the actual mission that they were supposed to do. And I think that both versions of the Magnificent Seven do that. And, of course, uh, another one which technically some people might not consider a remake, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, mm. is um, you know uh, uh, another one that I would consider one of the best uh, remakes of all time. Even though technically it's based on similar source material, there are references in that film to the George Powell film. But the one I have to go with, and I don't think too many people would disagree with me, is David Cronenberg's 1986 version of The Fly. I'd like to become the first insect politician. You see, I'd like to, uh, but, oh, I'm afraid. Um, I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying... saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it but now the dream is over and the insect is awake no sir I'm saying I'll hurt you if you stay that was that was one of my runners up okay uh, that one I would just say, because of its basic narrative conceit, um, technically the film is, quote-unquote, a more faithful version of the original short story by um, George Langelin, which was originally published in Playboy magazine back in the day. And uh, the original film, the screenplay was by James Clavell, you know, the old James Clavell of Shogun mm-hmm, and Shogun. Taipan and all those yeah. films. You know, but a lot of people forget that he was a screenwriter, uh, a screenwriter back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, who also wrote screenplays in movies like King Rat and a few others. So what I love about the Cronenberg film is that it, um, it's more short stories are usually designed around, for lack of a better term, the punchline. You know, the the fast the last reveal, the last sentence or two that makes the whole story come into place. But what I loved about the original film, as spoofed as it may be today, is that it took that premise of teleportation and gene splicing and couched it in the context of a family love story. You know, mm-hmm. uh, which the original short story really didn't do. Even though, yeah, it was told from the point of view of the woman, you know, of the wife. But I thought that the original film made that story its own in doing that. And I feel that Cronenberg's remake took that notion and really ran with it. And turned it into a bona fide love story. A visceral, disgusting, (laughs) you know, gory love story that even women loved. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And critics because, too. Women critics were like women, all over and them. critics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the thing was, I think the greatest idea that uh, the greatest notion that the film was working. I remember reading about the film uh, in Starlog magazine. Remember Starlog uh, mm-hmm. months before it opened, and I was psyched for it. Uh, I knew it wouldn't just be the help me laughable kind of thing. But I remember uh, the fly opened in the summer of 1986, and the 80s were this wonderful time where um, uh, 20th Century Fox to me, was just leading the, the pack in great science fiction films, great genre films. 
Uh, 20th Century Fox had a history of sci-fi films like Fantastic Voyage and the original Planet of the Apes and all these other films. And in the 80s, they were responsible for movies like, within a five, six-year period, they were responsible for movies like James Cameron's Aliens, Cronenberg's The Fly, um, Enemy Mine, Alien Nation. Uh, uh, was, was Predator? Pred- a predator, yes. Predator was a... Yeah, and, and they just had, they were just a leading studio in all these great mm-hmm. science fiction films, which I thought was a whole... A second, uh, a second golden era for science fiction films. If you could say it was led by one studio, it would be 20th Century Fox. And I remember the summer of 86. Um, the Fly opened in August of that year. I remember seeing trailers for The Fly in early July attached to Aliens. The aliens. Mm-hmm. And then I remember seeing them at a couple of different theaters in late in mid to late July. I'm sorry, uh, early July attached to Big Trouble in Little China, which is from Fox. And then in mid to late July uh, attached to Aliens. And then The Fly opened in August. And I remember in every theater that I saw The Fly trailer that year, uh, when audiences first understood it was a remake of The Fly, there were snickers in the audience. Yep. During, like, at the beginning of the trailer, halfway through the trailer. But by the time you got to the end of the trailer, everyone was like, whoa! Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not going to be like the original movie. This is going to be a balls-out thriller, even though the trailers maybe didn't hint at the love story aspect at the time. But I even remember later that summer, toward the end of the summer, uh, Big Trouble, Little China, Aliens, and The Fly were actually triple features at a lot of drive-ins across the country, you know. Um, but I, I distinctly remember how The Fly kind of came in unexpectedly. And Mel Brooks even decided to not have his name on the film as a producer, mm-hmm. which he also did with The Elephant Man, because he felt that if his name was on it, um, people would look at it as a spoof, you know, like Spaceballs or something like that. And he didn't want to take away from it. But it was a Brooks Brooks film. You know, that was in the credits. But as far as executive producer Mel Brooks, that was not. And I thought that was a wise thing to do. So to this day, The Fly remains David Cronenberg's biggest financial hit uh, and one of his uh, crossover uh, uh, critical hits with audiences and critics as well. And uh, I think it might rate as one of the greatest remakes ever made. So yeah, wow. I, I, I'm going to go with The Fly. I wholeheartedly support that. And actually, I had a feeling it would be somewhere in your list, which is part of why I didn't go with it. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, it was, it was high on my list, and it was pretty much in every category except the ones I'm ashamed to. All right. That was pretty awesome. So, I uh, just want to say, everybody, thanks for joining us uh, once again on the Movie Sneak. And before we go, you know, uh, Jim and I were chatting uh, a little earlier uh, off the record just about how we know some people will say, why didn't they do this one or why didn't they do that one why didn't they talk about this or hey this is a remake too and we just wanted to let you know um, we haven't forgotten okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know please come to our Facebook page find this episode and you know post your favorite poster or a trailer or a scene from, from a movie that you feel hey why didn't they do that one because trust me we, we're aware of them you know we know the Maltese Falcon was shot twice before Humphrey Bogart and uh, John Huston nailed it on the third time you know we know a lot of directors remo- remade their own work and God created woman and Man who knew too much and 
the vanishing and uh, funny games. And, you know, uh, some of my favorites, George Romero's been remade, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead. My favorite under, you know, George Romero remake is The Crazies. No one even remembers that one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, one that I think should be remade, and I've been thinking this, Craig and I have talked about this for years, um, is a film called Mr. 880 from 1950 with uh, uh, Edmund Gwynn and, and uh, pretty young and strapping looking Burt Lancaster. Mm-hmm. Um, Gwen plays a uh, uh, retired old gent uh, who counterfeits one dollar bills to buy cat food, and uh, Burt Lancaster is a secret service agent, secret service agent, excuse me, who sees these flawless one dollar bills and knows like the day this guy starts making hundreds, we're screwed because his one dollar bills are mm-hmm. flawless. With our sort of boom and bust economy of the past decade or even two decades, one, it's a sweet movie that could be remade just as a good comedy. But two, I think it would actually resonate with you know the, the life we've we've all lived in the past you know several years. For me, uh, if there was one, I mean, I don't really necessarily think there's a film that needs to be remade. But if there's one, I think would be fascinating, uh, falling into that category of updating it because of today's world. I've always thought that War Games would be an interesting film Ooh. to redo nowadays. Uh, there was sort of a sort of a kind of directed video sequel back in 2015 or 2016, but uh, to do War Games now because uh, computer technology and gaming technology, and we're almost like re-entering a new Cold War. I think it'd be a fascinating film if done properly. So that's one I wouldn't mind seeing somebody take another stab at in an intelligent manner. But um, yeah, who knows? We might see one one day. That's a great choice. I'd love that. So uh, once again, folks. Thanks for joining us uh, here at the Movie Sneak. And um, like uh, Jim said, uh, drop us a line if you have anything you want us to talk about or even if you disagree with some of the things we do talk about. (laughs) Until then, uh, we'll just keep bogarting the territory (laughs) and talk about what we want to talk about. Sounds (laughs) good. Until then, uh, thanks for joining us and see you next time here at the Movie Sneak. uh, Waiting for you up in those cheap seats. Reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only.